Last Sunday morning, John Garcia uh, helped us through the end of chapter 4 in Mark's gospel. Uh, this morning, we're getting into chapter 5 of Mark's gospel and our continuing journey through that book. Uh, first, let's pray one more time. God, help us to be open to the things that you would have us see and know uh, through your words, uh, through the scriptures, through the Bible, through what you have revealed. Help us to be uh, attentive mind, heart, and soul, to the words, to the letters, to your spirit, to your heart, to the things that you would have us know and become. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart if my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way with your word. May they be completely forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we read at the end of chapter 4, John did about Jesus' trip across the Sea of Galilee and how the disciples uh, and Jesus on that journey on a boat encountered a storm. Uh, we pick that up uh, with them landing on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the Great Lake, and encountering another kind of storm. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, listen closely, this is the Word of God. Jesus and his disciples went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Jesus gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank to the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, which means 10 cities, a 10 city area, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Jesus was confronted by a storm on the sea and now Jesus is confronted by a storm on the shore. A storm in a person. And everywhere Jesus goes, the demons come out. 
Remember back in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, Jesus goes to a synagogue service. And during the synagogue service, a man, quote, possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Everywhere Jesus went, demons seemed to surface. Demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits, those are all synonymous terms in the Gospels. We do not see them in the Old Testament. There aren't these demons all throughout the Old Testament. We hardly see them at all after the Gospels, post-Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, a couple of instances. But the demons in the Scriptures really show up where Jesus shows up in the Gospels. It is as if the light that Jesus is draws them out, exposes them, reveals them for who they are and their darkness. Jesus stepped out of the boat and a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to greet him. Welcome to the Gerasenes. Not exactly. This was anything but a greeting from a member of the Garrison's Chamber of Commerce. He was a wild man. He was a scary man. He was a crazy man. He lived in the tombs. He lived among the dead, either in rags or maybe sometimes naked. He was unkempt, disheveled, a mess, and strong as a beast. People had tried to subdue him, to bind him, to tie him up, maybe for his own good strap him to his bed as sometimes has been done in history to people inclined to harm themselves maybe for their own good. People even tried chains, chaining this man up, binding his arms, binding his legs, and he broke all of those chains. He was powerful. He was out of control. He was wild. He was strong and nothing worked. Mark says that no one could subdue him. The Greek word is tamazo. It's our Greek word for the morning. And it literally means to tame as one would tame a wild animal, a lion, a tiger, a bear, tempting to control them. And that's how they saw this man. But no one could tame him. And so he was condemned to live out his days alone in the tombs with no one to love him and no one to love. When he saw Jesus from a distance, the man ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus, Mark writes. The Greek word translated here, fell on his knees, is proskuneo, which means to worship. It means to bow down. It means to kiss someone's hand. It's used of a dog licking his master's hand. It means to prostrate oneself before one who is greater and to one to whom one belongs. And this demon, or this demon-possessed man, does what no one else in Mark's gospel has done since the demon or the demon-possessed man in the synagogue in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. He affirms publicly, loudly, boldly, clearly that Jesus himself is the Son of God and God in heart incarnate. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Going back to, remember, chapter 1, verse 1, the introduction, the thesis statement of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. And it's the demons 
who know most clearly who he is all along the way. They opposed Jesus. They opposed Jesus, everything that was good, lovely, right, and true. They were about themselves. They were sinister in their purposes and bent on evil and death. But they knew who Jesus was. And so Jesus says, declares, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And Jesus' little get to know you with the man continues, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion was made up of 6,000 soldiers. And Legion begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And the back and forth between singular and plural and singular and plural and me and we and between he and them highlights the twisted work and the confusing work of demons and represents the variety of agents of evil that worked against this man and that were a work at work against Jesus and that were and continue to be at work against God's kingdom then and today. And then come the requests. Seeing or aware of this herd of pigs over on a hillside, the ones speaking for the demons asked Jesus to allow them to enter the pigs. Notice to whom here the authority belongs. Notice who has authority here. As throughout Mark's gospel up to this point, as we've talked about over and over, Jesus has demonstrated his inherent authority as God, as the divine one over all sorts of things, people, situations, circumstances, nature, creation, the physical body, human bodies, evil spirits, relationships, forgiveness. He has just exercised his authority over the weather on the sea, and now he will exercise his authority over demons again by the sea. And Jesus forced out the demons, and Jesus permitted them, Mark says, to enter the pigs, which the demons immediately drowned by running them off of this steep cliff along the Sea of Galilee, down into the lake. Most pigs don't swim. There's this place in uh, Texas called Aquarina Springs where they actually have swimming pigs, but those are an anomaly. And I'm going to refrain at this point also from uh, talking or making jokes about deviled ham. It's now largely about the pigs. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And it sounds like those tending the pigs didn't own the pigs. They were just tending the pigs for others. They were hired helpers. They were pig herders, if you will. And they were probably, and they were probably scared because they were responsible for someone else's pigs. And if someone hires you to take care of their animals or anything else, and those animals end up dead, you've got a problem on your hands. You've got a lot of problems. And so they ran off to tell the people 
so that they would know what had happened, so that they would know that it wasn't their fault, so they could get ahead of the story, so they could get their story, the true story, out there before the fake news or the rumors or the other stories got out there. And the townspeople came a-running. And no doubt some of those who rushed to the scenes were owners of these pigs or some owners of other pigs who were concerned about what was happening to pigs in their community. And when the townspeople arrived, they encountered two things. First, the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And second, eyewitnesses to what had happened to those pigs. With regard to the man who had been possessed by the demons, Mark tells us that their response was fear. They were afraid. Something undeniable had happened outside of their control beyond what they could explain, contrary to their worldview and their understanding of how the world and life work. Something or someone had the power to alter reality in ways that they did not, in ways that they did not know were possible. And that was new and that was different and that was therefore scary, a fear As we fear change, uncertainty, fear of not being in control does weird things to people, does it not? Fear of not being in control, fear of a reality different than the one that we can reasonably predict can be frightening. And then there was the matter of the pigs and the people's response to the pigs' demise. 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. And just as today, pigs were then also a commodity, pork bellies. Pigs had tangible value. Pigs represented money. And these pigs were not insured. There was no way to recoup their losses. Their investment simply evaporated. And that sort of thing tends to make people emotional. The loss of great wealth or money or resources or stuff, material possessions, for no good reason and no explainable reason and with no way to recoup those losses makes people mad, really mad. And realizing that they could not take to court either the formerly demon-possessed man or the pigs or Jesus, The people asked Jesus to leave. They pled with him to leave, fearing something else like this might happen because of him or through him. They hoped to just cut their losses and be done with Jesus. And Jesus climbed back into probably the same boat, which he had just arrived on. And the healed man said, I'm going with you, Jesus. I'm going with you. And Jesus said, no. You're staying. And how fair was that? Was that fair? Jesus had accommodated the request of the townspeople. Jesus had accommodated the request of the demons. And now he won't accommodate the request of someone who he has just saved from demons. How fair is that? How consistent is that? Over and over up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has called people to follow him, to go with him, to learn from him. And now Jesus says the opposite to this man. 
Over and over and over, up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has said to people, don't tell others about me. Keep a lid on all of this. It's a secret, at least for now. And now Jesus tells this man to go and tell others about him. In other words, about Jesus and about what they'd seen. Imagine how this man's relationship with his family, friends, neighbors must have soured over the years. He'd become a thorn in their side, a nuisance, a pain, an annoyance, a source of fear, a burden, an embarrassment to his family. And now he had been instrumental in the great loss of the community of 2,000 pigs. Imagine if you were that man, how difficult it would then be to forgive those people who had treated you like that for years, probably all of your adult lifetime. And to be reconciled to people who who had treated you as a pariah and worse, like an animal for years. He wanted to go with Jesus. He was looking for a fresh start. He was looking for a way out of his community. He was looking to get to the other side of the lake, which was a different world. Hanging with the guy who just, with a word, completely transformed his life. Who wouldn't choose that? That's what I'd do if I was him. Go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home to your own people And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that's exactly what the man did. And over and over and over in the Gospels, what matters most is not who a person is when they encounter Jesus or the condition a person is in when they encounter Jesus, but rather how they respond to Jesus and how they are after that encounter and through that encounter. Are you with me? Think of all the people Jesus encounters in the Gospels. So the man went away and began to tell the Greek word keruso. It means literally to proclaim and to preach. Mark changes the word. Jesus says, go and tell. And then he says, and that word tell means to sort of uh, talk, be a messenger. And then Jesus changes the word in the Greek. It looks the same in English, tell. But it's now the word proclaim, announce, declare, preach. In the Decapolis, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And from this point on, we could go several directions. We could talk about how when the world saw a monster, Jesus saw a person made in the image of God and dearly loved. When the world pushed someone out, Jesus brought someone in. What the world saw as a disaster of a person, Jesus saw as a reclamation project for which 2,000 pigs was a small price to pay. Or we could talk about how the money God keeps people, including people like us, from engaging with the one true God, with the Father of Jesus. There may be a cost, an expense, a price, a capital outlay, some financial or material loss even in following Jesus. And the prospect of such or the risk of such is just too much for some. We might be open to teacher, master, savior, who is going to bless us in the financial realm, abundance, the prosperity gospel. But why follow a Messiah if such might mean a hit to our livestock, our resources, our investments, our accounts, our portfolios, our wealth? 
Or we could talk from this passage about Jesus' mission to the pig-raising, pig-eating Gentiles across the sea. This is the first example of that in Mark's gospel. Of Jesus' vision for a bigger and bigger kingdom. And sometimes we grow in the harder things more than we ever would have grown in the easier things. Sometimes that's the way God works. Sometimes that's the way God works. Through calling us to the hard things, to the giving up, to the letting go, through the dying to self, through the dying that Gladys talked about and Jim Jim prayed about. We could talk more about all of these things in this passage, but with my last few minutes, I'd like to talk about Jesus' call to go and tell which may be one of those hard things for many of us that we don't often do or refrain from or sidestep or avoid. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And one must imagine that what Jesus told this man to do 2,000 years ago on the other side of the lake, he continues to say today, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. But I'm not good at that sort of thing. I don't know how. I don't know what to say. I let my actions do my talking. I communicate through loving other people. Nobody wants to be preached at. I'm not comfortable talking about such things. People don't want to hear it. Go home to your own people and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The author, professor preacher, Baptist preacher, evangelist, Christian leader, Tony Campolo, often recounted over the course of his ministry about his conversion in that weekend and how on Friday night he heard the gospel, came to faith, received the Lord, prayed that prayer, did all of those things, and how on Saturday night, the next night, he was out on a street corner preaching and he was asked many times, what did you preach on Saturday night? How could you? What did you know? You had no background, no foundation, no knowledge, no anything. And he said, on Saturday night, I preached about what happened on Friday night. And that was enough. On Saturday night, I told people about what I had experienced on Friday night. And that was more than enough. Can we do the same? Are we called to do the same? This was not tops on the list of things to do of the tomb-dwelling man who had been freed from a legion of demons, but he did it. He went to his people and he told them. And Mark says that those people were amazed. They had been afraid. They had been among the afraid and now they were amazed. And that is remarkable. That is noteworthy. And I would imagine that some of the hometown people we might tell about what God has done in our lives might be amazed as well. Or might go from, no thanks, I'm not interested, I don't want to hear that, no thank you, to, oh, oh, that's interesting. And that's what I want to challenge all of us here, there, there, at home, me, you. That's what I want to challenge us toward this morning, to articulate and to practice articulating in specific terms what the Lord has done for us 
and how the Lord has had mercy on us and in our lives. What the Lord has done for you, what the Lord has done for me, and how the Lord has had mercy on us. God's purpose, God exists not to give me stuff, to bless you with stuff, to fill your cup, but inevitably God can't help himself and does such things. That's how God is. God is rich in mercy. That's who God is, and that's what we need. Heard a story one time of a wealthy, older heiress who had lots of money and lots of resources and not a lot to do with it. And so one day contracted with a famous painter to do a life-size portrait of her. And so he agreed. They signed a contract, made a deal, and began to work on it. And she would sit there uh, near the window, and he day after day would paint and paint and paint and stay behind the canvas and insist that she not see his work until it was finished, complete. And one day he said, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. And with tremendous excitement, she says, do I get to see it now? Yes, you get to see it now. And she comes around the huge canvas and her face sort of drops. And she says, well, I don't think you've done me justice. To which the painter replies, man, with all due respect, it is not justice you need, but mercy. But mercy. We all need mercy. And to acknowledge and even tell or proclaim what the Lord has done for me is not boasting. It shouldn't come across that way. What God has done for me and how God has had mercy on me has nothing to do with who I am or how I am or what I have or something I've done or accomplished or merited on my own. And in fact, the opposite is true. Acknowledging God's mercy in my life means acknowledging my need and my brokenness and my insufficiencies and not the other way around. And so we can tell about what God has done in our lives and how God has had mercy on us. And these things aren't up for debate. These are our stories These are our personal stories. They cannot be refuted. They stand on our own. We can tell on Saturday night, even just about what happened on Friday night, what God has done for us and how the Lord has had mercy on us, just as he had on the man in the tombs. And so I'm going to challenge you this morning to write down right now what the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. And for the sake of accountability and to make this a little bit more than a monologue, which is unfortunate that these things often end up this way and go nowhere, I really want to ask you and encourage you to take time right now, and we're going to give you a minute to write down on a piece of paper, or better yet, send an email to info at fpcsm.org, or use that connect tab in the upper left-hand corner of our website if you're at home. You can do that anonymously. You can put your name on the first line. You can put initial. You can put three initials. And then down in the blank where it says prayer request, just type out 
this is what the Lord has done for me, and this is how the Lord has had mercy on me. Send an email, use that tab, or, or if you want to sort of be out there, and you're welcome to be, use the chat and share that with others. And do this as a discipline. Do this as a practice. Because that is the first step to being able to do this with other people. Jesus sent the man in a way and to a people that he didn't want to be sent. But sometimes God, who is good, grows us in this way. Grows us through things we're not naturally inclined to do or don't want to do or are resisting doing. And we have said... We want to grow spiritually. Two weeks ago, we talked about one of our values is following the Lord Jesus. We strive to cultivate spiritual growth continuously. And we want to do that. And one of the ways that we do that is listening to Jesus and doing what he says, doing what he encourages people to do. And not just hearing that, through a message or a sermon, but practicing that. So I'm going to give you one minute. Uh, if you're at home, you've got a way to do that. If you're here, and maybe you pull out your phone and do that there or write it down some other way. But I want to encourage you to do this and then submit it, share it, allow that to be some accountability or encouragement to others. Do that anonymously. Do that with your name attached. And then if you're with someone else this morning or today, share that verbally with someone as well, someone you live with, a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, and begin to practice that which Jesus calls us to, that which Jesus invites us to, and a means and a way for us to grow spiritually. I trust that in doing this, God will be glorified. We will be satisfied, and we will see his kingdom come. Stephen's going to play for about a minute. Then I'll close this in prayer.
Let's pray. We are grateful, God, for the ways in which you have had mercy on us, specifically through Christ the Lord, through the abundance that we have experienced through your presence with us through trials, through your guidance, through your provision, through your love. We are grateful. Make us into beacons, ambassadors, announcers, tellers of your goodness, of the goodness of the Lord. Through thick and thin on the mountains and in the valleys, through darkness and in the light, in pandemics and in seasons of health and prosperity, you have been far better to us than we deserve. And we are grateful. May your name be praised. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.